Welcome to Art of the Kickstart, your source for crowdfunded campaign success and better physical product businesses. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and each week I interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert designed to help you take your startup to the next level. If you're interested in learning what we're all about and kickstarting your own crowdfunding campaign, check out artofthekickstart.com slash checklist. You'll get our entire guide to crush your campaign and take your business to new heights. But now, let's get on with the show. If you're looking to get fulfillment for your next crowdfunding campaign, make sure you talk to efulfillmentservice.com, the company that Art of the Kickstart recommends for any crowdfunders out there. Guys, welcome back to Art of the Kickstart. Today, we've got an interesting and all too uncommon interview planned. We've got Jesse Lawler, smart drug smarts, a body hacker, a life hacker, traveler, and startup extraordinaire on the line to help you guys take your business life to the next level. Thanks for coming on, Jesse. Thank you so much. Absolutely. The warm welcome welcome is necessary. We've got Mr. Tim Ferriss 2.0. To a certain extent, right? <laughs> I, would, I would maybe say like version 0.65 or something at best, but, uh, oh, no. but thank you for the comparison. No, it's okay. It's like when you overhype the movie and then it just turns out to be great instead of extraordinary. It feels kind of dull. So no pressure, but you've got to really push it on this one, Jesse. Gotcha, gotcha. I'll do my best. Okay, I'm going to do some jumping jacks. We'll continue. Okay, I like it. I like the energy already. We start these life quote, a success quote. What do you got? Oh, gosh. What life quote or success quote? Um. Uh, let's go Winston Churchill. When going through hell, keep going. Keep going. Because if you're stuck, you're kind of just, yeah. Uh, exactly. Keep going. I like that. That's a great life mentality. And you know what? We were going to start this with, with startups, but you're a fellow traveler, a fellow nomad. Keep going. What does that make you think of? Interesting. Um, You know, it, it's actually, that hits close to home for me right now because I just kind of replanted myself in Los Angeles after having been traveling for most of the past three years. And it's, it's interesting. I, I kind of feel like the Rolling Stone gathers no moss thing is true, even when sometimes, you know, like the Rolling Stone means rolling home. And right now it's been really interesting, like coming back to America. I just visited both my, uh, my dad and my mom separately for a couple of months. And, um, and yeah, now I'm repositioning myself in Los Angeles after having been, you know, in the far corners of the world for a long time. So yeah, keep, keep going is to me kind of like, yeah, everything kind of gets boring after a while and you need to keep stirring the pot. That's one of the things I've noticed. I'm in Vietnam now. I'll call home. Nothing changes. Unless you're really out there changing, the rest of the world will just kind of wait. And you're the entrepreneur. You've got to, you've got to make shit happen. You've made shit happen. Evil Genius Technologies. Coolest business name ever. What's your little <laughs> bit of your background before we get into smart drugs? Thank you. Um, yeah. Let's see. Well, I, my background, I guess, is as a software developer out of university, but it was kind of like I was always a movie guy. Like I got bit by the movie bug early. I'm in Los Angeles right now because I moved here straight out of college to work in the movies. And I actually did work professionally in film for several years. Um, but then when the financial crisis hit around 2008, 2009, that became just untenable for me. I was, I was a low budget producer making like low budget horror movies that would play on Showtime at two o'clock in the morning and stuff like that. And, you know, that became a, a financially un, unwieldy thing to try to do after the people that normally invested in films like that lost their shirts in the, uh, the stock market crash. And so at that point, I, I got back into technology, which is something I, I knew how to do, but I hadn't really been doing for a number of years. And I, I guess just sort of my, my flair for the dramatic, I, I named it Evil Genius Technologies because I figured it would be a name that nobody would forget. And 
the name has actually done quite well as far as that goes. Oh, absolutely. And you clearly do have that flair for the dramatic. You've got, you've got an awesome personality. You seem to be very energetic. Do you think that's something founders have to have? Whew. Um, it certainly doesn't hurt. I mean, I think the ability to kind of get other people charged up is certainly a really, really valuable skill in almost any line of work. It's funny. It's like, I feel like I'm better at motivating people than I am at actually leading them. It, you, you learn so much about yourself when you start like building a team. And I, I kind of went from being the classic solopreneur, especially kind of in the film industry where I, I was wearing a lot of hats myself on low budget projects to um, when, when I got into technology, starting to kind of hire a team to slowly take over the pieces of it that I found boring or that I wasn't particularly good at. And you quickly become aware of all the skills that you don't have. Um, some, sometimes like being super technically gifted yourself, you realize that you're, um, you're not gaining the social skills on like how to lead other people and doing technical tasks just because you've been doing everything yourself. And um, yeah, there's, there's just so much that you learn starting your own business and kind of like going through the building blocks of going from you know, a one-person company to a three-person company to at one point, I was up to about 17 people. I'm actually a bit under that now. But, um, but yeah, there's, just, there, there's lots of different growing stages along the way. How do you get over some of that? If you're not great at managing, how do you manage a system like that? Uh, gosh, I, in retrospect, I kind of think probably the best move is, is to hire somebody who is good at management or partner with somebody who is good at management and kind of split those hats up rather than try to do everything yourself. You might not learn quite as much that way, but on the other hand... Um, you know, there's something to be, to be said for focusing on the things that you really are gifted at. I probably am guilty of being a little bit too, um, like, mile wide and an inch deep. I feel like I'm a good solid B plus at a whole lot of things and probably an A plus at relatively few things. And um, yeah, it's just tough to know. But like, for me, a lot of, I have so many interests. I feel, I feel bad going super, super, super deep on one thing to the exclusion of learning something else to a passable level. And that's just sort of a judgment call, I think. I think everybody needs to make those decisions themselves, whether they really, really want to go deep on everything or on something or whether they want to get sort of a passable knowledge of a lot of different things. Yeah, it really depends on what you're interested in. But it sounded like the evil genius hack is hire a supervillain to manage the business. Well, or or manage the personnel. I think that that's probably a pretty common thing of like maybe having one half of a startup be sort of a, a team manager type that you know, interacts with the outside world, interacts with the staff, and then somebody else who might be like the hyper-focused, uh, like technical savant, who's like, here's what we're going to build, damn the torpedoes, um, you know, is, is willing to, you know, burn bridges and piss people off and kind of maintain the focus on, on what the actual product needs to be. Absolutely. You got to keep that focus. But the primary reason we got you on here was Smart Drug Smarts. It was all about hacking. Crowdfunders are hackers. They like to do it yourself, create cool yeah. products. What in God's name, is your background with all of this crazy health, nootropics, and life hacking? Yeah, cool. Okay, well, so I'm, I'm a second-generation health nut. My dad is, is definitely the original Lawler health nut in the family and kind of got me started on that early. But probably about seven or eight years ago, I was flipping through a Maxim magazine, which is not normally what one should do to expand their mind. But I came across an article about something called Provigil, which was this drug that could make people focus better and, you know, some computer programmers were using it. And I was a, you know, at that point, an ex-computer programmer. Little did I know, soon to be future computer programmer at that point. And anyway, I was, I was curious about this because the only, you know, really drugs that I had experience with were the ones that, you know, make you dumber. I was, you know, familiar with alcohol and stuff like that. And I was like, well, what, what would the opposite of that be? What would like an inverted hangover feel like? And, and so the article had me curious enough that I was like, well, I got to get me some of this stuff. And um, th- so Provigil is the trade name of something called Modafinil. It's, 
is the actual underlying chemical. And they mentioned that while normally this is a prescription drug, there's a lot of mail order Canadian pharmacies that'll just sell this across the border and ship it to you in discreetly labeled packages. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just do that. That sounds easier than getting a doctor's appointment, trying to convince that I'm, that I'm narcoleptic, which I'm not. And so I ordered some of this stuff. And yeah, lo and behold, I found it was this interesting way of taking a pill and kind of helping me kind of put the mental blinders on, increase my concentration for a period of time, and, uh, and really just kind of like drop into a sort of flow state that while it's not unreachable with a you know, chemically unaltered brain, it's just kind of like an extra boost in that direction. And that kind of just got me curious about this whole brain hacking and what came to be called uh, nootropics thing. I didn't know that word at the time, and we can kind of talk about what that word means. But um, yeah, anyway, so then a couple of years ago, probably about two and a half years ago now, I actually got a little bit more formal about my curiosity about this, and I started a podcast called Smart Drug Smarts, which I still do. It's on a weekly basis now. We're almost, uh, we're about to publish our 80th episode, actually, this weekend. And um, yeah, basically, it's been an excuse for me to call up neuroscientists, for the most part. I'd, I'd say probably about 60 to 70% of the people that we interview are, are PhDs that work in some sort of you know, academic research bent um, and trying to figure out ways of making people smarter, making your brain work better protecting your brain against cognitive decline as you age and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the podcast is beautiful. It's your card to basically get a hold of anyone. But before we go a little bit deeper into nootropics, give us, I know this isn't your business. I know this isn't your product, but let's have a little disclaimer about some of the, some of the side effects. Guys, don't try this being stupid. Make, yeah, sure, yeah, that you, make sure you know what you're doing. Modafinil in excessive dosage, the, the Charlie Hohen story, right? <laughs> I'm not even sure who Charlie Owen is, but it sounds scary already. Oh, that uh, some uh, some Tim Ferriss. Uh, he worked for Tim Ferriss, and he was taking like excessive amounts every day, and he just lost it. Oh, geez, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to say all things in moderation because there are some things that you wouldn't want to do even in moderation. But oh, absolutely, I, yeah. That try that try it. Don't knock it before you try it. It's totally not there. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some things. I mean, you, you you don't need to try. You don't need to try huffing gasoline to be pretty sure it's not a good idea. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I, I make no claims to give advice to anybody other than myself. I mean, the podcast is, is just kind of a, a public forum for some of my own investigation into this stuff. And, you know, some of the, some of the things we talk about on the podcast are things that I, I'm willing to experiment with myself. Others, I kind of hear what the doctor has to say about it. And I'm like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to, you know, leave that one in someone else's medicine cabinet because the, the risk reward ratio doesn't sound like it balances out to me. And I think everybody has their own risk tolerance. And, and, you know, I think giving people access to this information so they can say, hey, does this sound like it's something where the positives and my curiosity factor towards it outweigh the potential negatives and, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm willing to you know, sort of ante up as far as my own personal health? Because some, sometimes there is that trade-off. I mean, like, like modafinil, um, you know, the example that we just brought up with, that's a chemical that's been around and, you know, has had FDA approval for about, you know, 16, 17 years now. So it's pretty well studied. But on the other hand, if it's something that after 30 years of use, like your, your brain drops out, it's like nobody would know because it hasn't been around for 30 years yet. Yeah. At the same time, people are going to take risks to get the benefits. That's why we got you on. Let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So, well, okay. So, so let, let me hammer one thing first, because this is just like one of my favorite things to bring up little you know, pet peeves is probably like cognitive enhancers and smart drugs, as they're called, are, are probably like three to four years ahead in the UK of where they are in the US as far as public knowledge about them and you know, how, how frequently these things are just floating around in society. 
And there's a lot of these like European papers that are kind of have these screaming headlines every week, like college students taking, you know, trading one another for prescription medication they don't have prescriptions for to help them study, you know, making these big sort of sensationalist journalism, you know, craziness. And what, what always occurs to me is what percent of college students are binge drinking alcohol every single weekend? Absolutely. Which is like, and that's just, oh, God, alcohol. Yeah. I mean, it's a neurotoxin. We've known it's a neurotoxin forever. There's just like evidence after evidence after evidence of you know people doing stupid stuff, getting in car crashes, beating their wife, whatever. And it's legal everywhere. And it's socially accepted to one degree or another everywhere, except strict Muslim countries, funny enough. And, and, uh, and you know, there's no public outcry about that stuff whatsoever. But somebody takes a drug to help them you know, study better for a midterm. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, the end of the world. It's, uh, it's the taboo effect, the social proof effect. I actually just finished the book uh, Influence by Robert Cialadini. If anyone wants to learn a little bit more about copywriting, something I've heard you're pretty good at, Jesse, check that out to learn how you can... He tries to protect people from salesmen, but you can become a godly salesman from that book. Yeah, that's a long, thick and good one. Oh, absolutely. Wow, that, sounded, that sounded inadvertently pornographic, but yeah. That's okay. That's okay. We have a little fun on this show. So productivity hacks. Entrepreneurs that want to take their business to the next level safely. What are, some, what are some strategies they can use? Everyone does the caffeine thing. We'll go get juiced up on a coffee, a tea, some sure. freaking Red Bull shots. What do you do? Well, okay. So, so I guess I would, I would mention the caffeine. There's something called L-theanine, which is actually the active ingredient in green tea other than caffeine. And that's kind of a nice little hack to add to your caffeine or to get one of these pills that pre-combines caffeine with L-theanine for you for the simple reason that L-theanine has something, it, it, it promotes the release of a neurotransmitter called GABA, which tends to be kind of the chill out, calm down neurotransmitter that makes your neurons actually a little less likely to fire. And what's interesting about that is while you still get the sort of the perkiness and, and less likelihood of falling asleep that comes from yes. caffeine, you, it, yeah, it makes those jitters and, and sort of that feeling of anxiety that sometimes comes with caffeine stimulation not be there so much. So for example, last night, I actually took a caffeine plus L-theanine. I had a lot of stuff to do. I wasn't ready to go to sleep yet, and, but I didn't want to overstimulate myself. And so um, yeah, one, one of those little pills went a long way. And what's interesting about the, um, the pill formulations on those rather than just drinking green tea is in naturally occurring green tea, the ratio of caffeine to L-theanine is about two to one in favor of caffeine. But research into what's actually best for the cognitive effects is actually about a flipped ratio. So about one, one part caffeine to two parts L-theanine, which is what the, the pre-made pills tend to be. So that, that's something that I think everybody probably feels safe about. There's you know, no risk of you know, overdosing and you know, killing yourself on caffeine pills unless you just went and literally ate a garbage oh, bag God. at once. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty much impossible. You know, I think something like fish oil actually is worth talking about and is something that almost everybody who has something like a standard Western diet has a screwy ratio of omega-6 fatty acids to omega-3 fatty acids. Um, if they're eating you know, a traditional amount of red meats versus things like fish and avocados and, and uh, oily vegetables. So I think for most people, a, um, you know, fish oil or other omega-3 fatty acid supplement would be good. And it, the reason that's good for your brain and nerves in particular is because there's um, you know, a part of the brain or a part of the, each neuron called um, you know, axons and dendrites there. They have this thing called myelin, which is wrapped around them, which basically helps them carry their electrical charge. And myelin is, is basically made of omega-3 fatty acids. And so it's just kind of one of these 
fundamental physical building blocks of big pieces of your brain. Your brain is something like, like by dry weight, if you sucked all the water out of it and put it on a scale, it's something like 30 to 40% omega-3 fatty acids. So let me ask you this. Supplements can have a huge effect. What, on the other hand, you referenced the, the alanine or whatever, whatever it was with caffeine. Yeah, L-theanine. L-theanine, yeah. These crazy, oh God, these scientific words. They're way too Sorry, much. man. No, no, it's okay. So, real food versus supplementation. I've always heard that supplements weren't as effective absorbed. Uh, it varies. I mean, it's, it's tough to make a blanket statement about that. Some supplements are quite well absorbed. And, uh, but one thing to really mention with that, and people are becoming so much more aware of gut health and how much that affects every other part of your body, including your brain, is if you have a really, really crappy diet, I was I'm not sure if I can cuss on this show. So I was going to say shitty diet. Go for it. If you have a really, really shitty diet, then you're probably going to have a difficult time absorbing nutrients because you're going to have all this crap built up in your gut that's making your gut not function as effectively as it normally would. And it somebody with with a crappy diet isn't going to be able to get the benefits of a supplement as well as somebody that has a clean diet and a a, you know properly functioning GI tract. So it's really hard to look at any of these things in isolation. I mean. The brain, the body, all these things you know, interact with one another so closely that um, you know, one of the things that is, is a drumbeat that I really try to hit on my podcast all the time, even though it is you know, overtly it's a show about pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals is you know, I probably believe that the technologies that we have to kind of amp up somebody beyond their physiological baselines, you know, maybe that can give you a short-term spike of you know, 30%, 40%, maybe that can give you a long-term spike of, of, you know, five to 15, maybe 20% if you're just doing everything perfectly. But I feel like most people are probably having such poor lifestyle choices as far as you know, diet, exercise, sleep hygiene, things like that, that they're, they're undercutting what should be kind of their normal physiological baseline by a far greater percentage. So most people, you know, the place to start is really to, to fix your lifestyle choices and start eating better, start exercising more, start sleeping on a reasonable schedule before you try to layer on these things like cognitive enhancers or doing you know, transcranial direct current stimulation or things like that um, that, that are going to get you a, a marginal benefit, but you know, might not even bring you up to your baseline if you're doing something like you know, eating you know, Doritos for breakfast every morning. Yeah, I talked about this in a recent blog post. I'm launching a, a Cheeto stand. It's a stand desk business, but basically... It's the same concept of sitting while you work. You're below 100%. And then yeah. once you get up to 100%, you're like, dear God, I ever lived at that lower level before. But people are, people are there. And that's one, of the, that's one of the big challenges. That's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. So, Nootropics, where are they going? Ooh, where are they going? Well, I, I guess we should talk with where they are first. And, yeah, and where, then they, talk where about, are we, where we're going? Yeah. Um, Nootropics is an industry that has benefited hugely from the fact that as people get older, they, their brains tend not to work as well. And, you know, Alzheimer's is a giant problem with the aging of the baby boomers. You know, they're expecting the number of people with Alzheimer's that are, you know, alive and sort of, you know, in public circulation, something like quadruple, quintuple over the next 15 to 20 years. And, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing, uh, the way that people's, you know, brains can really kind of, you know, fall off a mental cliff before, before their bodies expire sometimes. I mean, and uh, so there's been a lot of research into that and things that people can do to, to slow that process of cognitive degeneration. And it turns out that a lot of these drugs that can sort of prop up a fading brain can also have benefits for people that are much younger in life. And so what people think of as nootropics and cognitive enhancers now are oftentimes kind of hand-me-downs 
from the research of how people protect their brains late in life. This can be uh, protecting from like neurological degenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease or um, things that don't have quite a clear mechanism of action like you know, Alzheimer's or just general senile dementia, as they call it. And so, um, yeah, probably in the 1960s, the first thing that was considered a nootropic was it was like synthesized in a lab was created. That was something called paracetam. And there's now actually a family of chemicals called racetams. They all have the suffix racetam. So there's you know, aniracetam, which is my personal favorite, and oxiracetam and pramiracetam and, and this, this whole variety of chemicals, all of which have different effects in one to another and you take different numbers of milligrams, but they consistently have some, some cognitive benefits, both as far as memory and focus for some of them, clarity of perception, and they're, they're considered neuroprotective in that they make brain cells and nerve cells in general be able to sort of sustain cellular damage and repair themselves easier, which is one of the things that makes them so effective for protection of fading brains. Um, those would be probably some of the chemicals that would be really worth thinking about. Gosh, I've got a little dog barking here. Can you oh, hear no that? worries. We love dogs. Oh, we okay, the cats cool. here all the time. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's the neighbor's dog. Otherwise, I would, I would do something obnoxious to it. But, um, so, yeah, let's see. The racetams are, are really worth talking about. We talked a little bit about uh, modafinil and its sibling chemical, armodafinil and adrafinil, which are, <laughs> again, that'll happen a lot where you see these suffices of these chemicals that uh, kind of have a, a bouquet of them that sounds similar. There's something called Nuopept, which was synthesized just probably about 15 years ago in Russia as sort of an attempt to knock off the uh, the racetams and kind of give them more chemical oomph. So something like you know 15 milligrams of Nuopept is equivalent to something you know a hundred times its weight of one of the racetams. So th- there's a, there's a whole lot of this. There's um longevity.org uh, is actually a really good site where people geek out about you know their various drug stacks. It's probably one of the, the primary places where people that are really into brain hacking kind of go and compare notes on what they're doing one person versus another and what's working recently. And um, then there's a lot of natural compounds that have been around for a long time that also have cognitive benefits. A lot of people have heard of ginkgo biloba, which is a plant that has been used in Eastern medicine for a couple thousand years and has... Um, Various studies have shown different things about that one, whether it actually improves memory or not, but it, it certainly purported to. There's one which uh, has probably more consistent findings out of India, a, um, a plant called Bacopa moneri. I, I forget if that's actually made from a mushroom or a plant. I think, it's, I think it's a root, if I remember correctly. But that's been around for a long, 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 long time. And um, you know, then there's some interesting research going on into things which haven't been around forever, but the, their constituents have been. Um, you've probably heard of, of Siltep, which uh, is a combination of an Ayurvedic herb called Forskolin, which has been around forever, and um, an artichoke extract. And the combination of these two things together tend to um, you know, make brain cells slightly more likely to uh, what's called long-term potentiate. It sort of helps uh, learning pathways get formed. There's this um, neurological saying that's been kicked around for so long because it rhymes, which is, Neurons that fire together wire together, which oh, essentially when, uh, when, when, you, when you first do something and those sets of neurons fire and you keep firing those same neurons repetitively as you're learning to do something like ride a bicycle or what have you, eventually these um, neurons that are firing, they kind of learn that, hey, we're, we're working in lockstep a lot. Let's actually kind of get ourselves syncopated to work in lockstep even better and more efficiently. 
And it turns out that's sort of the root of learning is laying down these neural pathways that kind of expect to be like a, a cascade of neurons firing at once. And so, um, yeah, long-term potentiation is sort of a process that can help that happen more effectively. So, Jesse, I'm looking in my crystal ball. My crystal ball is HD 3D, and I'm seeing nice. neurotropics, and suddenly we have apes. There's apes everywhere, and they're talking, and they're in Hollywood, Planet of the Apes. That's what I'm hearing when I hear a lot of this research. What? <laughs> let's, let's play around a little bit with that. What are some of the potential damages of this kind of research? Well, hmm. That's a, that's a great question. I think the damages of this kind of, of the research are very small. It's like effectively done research probably isn't done on humans first. And so, uh, you know, unless it's probably done on it, apes, yeah, it's probably done. On, yeah. If you're, if you're an ape, there could be a lot of damage. Um, but yeah, in, unless you're doing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde stuff and you happen to have a lab and you're experimenting on yourself and, you know, eating your own dog food, as it were, the, the research end of it should be pretty safe. On the other hand, people that are sort of going off half cocked and getting access to chemicals that are in a research phase that haven't you know, made it through human trials yet, then you're, you're taking your brain into your own hands. And I think that would be uh, you know, obviously something not to be recommended. If there's anything that you want to be very conservative with, it is the proper maintenance of your own brain. You know, but I think people are always going to be curious about that because, of course, manipulating your brain as far as like your perceptual reality, you get more bang for the buck doing that than you do just about anything else. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the same things that make people curious about any sort of altered state, whether it's, you know, like recreational drugs or things like that, people are always going to be curious about upticking their brain if there's the possibility to do that. And then it's just up to each person's risk tolerance. But um, yeah, personally, I'm, I'm sort of on the conservative end of that spectrum. It's like, as I said, I'm a health nut. You know, I don't drink alcohol at all. I haven't had a drop of, to drink in like 10 years. And it's not because I was an alcoholic and, you know, getting in car crashes and bar fights. It was just because I was like, you know what, for me, the downsides of this outweigh the upsides. But on the other hand, it's like, I'm willing to try some of these nootropic substances, the ones that sort of pass my own threshold for whether it seems like it's probably a safe thing. So nootropics, they're all about enhancing the body, the mind, hormones. Then we have the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Suddenly wearables and quantified self, that entire movement's growing, especially through crowdfunding. Where is this kind of cyborg movement of measuring yourself, enhancing yourself going? Do you see, a, do you see an evolution happening? Ooh, it's funny. I'm actually going to the Quantified Self Conference in San Francisco in just about 10 days. So, uh, so you asked me at, at either just the right time or just the wrong time. It's like I'm really excited about it now, but I'll know even more about it two weeks from now than I do right now. Um, but where, where is this Quantified Self stuff going and where wearables going? I think they're going absolutely everywhere. I think the um, the fact that we all have smartphones, which are you know, essentially supercomputers in our pockets, is, is just the start. And the fact that we're all carrying around this much computing power and it's becoming this inexpensive, it's unrealistic to think that this isn't going to percolate into every aspect of society and just what's considered normal. And the ability to monitor all these things is it's just getting so much easier that, and there's so many upsides to doing it. The things like people that are measuring their blood glucose because they're pre-diabetic or, or are diabetic. And, you know, that's been a, a pain in the ass historically. You've had to prick yourself with a needle a couple times a day and, you know, jot stuff down. But, but now this kind of stuff can start to be done automatically. People that have serious medical conditions, some of them have, you know, built in blood glucose monitors that are just, you know, every minute or so, or just, you know, putting it in a spreadsheet somewhere, you know, uploading it to 
Google charts or what have you. It's like, oh, you're like glucose at this minute of the day is this. And I, I think we're going to be able to start to do that with far more frivolous uses times when it's not like a life or death scenario when you're just kind of curious. Um, and there are people that are using this for all kinds of stuff, not just for physical hacks and knowing, you know, is, is my heart about to explode? But like, what kind of mood am I in? Uh, and cross that data with where am I physically located? If, uh, you know, if I'm walking home on this route versus that route, does this put me in a better mood? Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't go down this street. Maybe I should go down this other one. Um, basically, we're going to have the ability to monitor things in a, in a pretty hands-free way and an effort-free way, almost to our heart's content. And I think the amount of data that's going to be available from that and, and having non-human systems that can sort of bulk analyze that data and maybe tell us patterns that we're not even looking for initially is, is really going to be pretty revolutionary. It's tough to know where that's going to go, but I think it's going to go everywhere. Information is absolute power. But let's play a little bit of devil's advocate. One way I see this potentially going is almost a race of superhumans, people that can afford the latest and greatest technology, quite literally evolving and becoming more faster than the rest of the rest of society. What are your thoughts on that? I, th I think that's not unreasonable. I mean, there have always been massive disparities as far as advantage and uh, in, in all societies. I mean, you know, I'm not it used saying to be it's wrong. You, I'm just curious on your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it used to be that some people were born kings and other people were born peasants and that you were kind of like locked into that because that's what society had to offer. And we've, you know, for the last couple of hundred years, we've had this in at least in a few lucky parts of the world, we've had this historically unusual circumstance where we've had a pretty good mobility within culture of somebody that's, you know, really gifted or really hardworking can kind of advance their lot in life. Uh, that that might maybe just be a historical anomaly that existed, you know, between the Renaissance and the you know mid 21st century in a few parts of the world. And, and maybe that won't be the case anymore. It might be that the, the techno elite or, or whomever gets access to some of these, you know, far flung technologies first will kind of have like a springboard that takes them so far so fast that it'll be tough for everyone else to catch up with. I mean, it's, it's tough to say. It's like you can come up with all these weird dystopian futures. But, you know, I look at look at like dogs. All dogs started off as wolves and we selectively bred them into the huge, huge variety of different dogs that we have today. And you have some dogs that are very physically fit and you probably would do quite well in the world. Like if they're if humans all died, I think like German shepherds would probably do OK. I think chihuahuas probably not so much. And um, I, I feel like there could be not not based on biological evolution, but based on technological evolution almost a similar sort of speciation among, you know, what we now know as homo sapiens, just because of the technologies that will be coming online. And we might wind up with, with derivatives of, of homo sapiens that are just as different as, you know, Great Danes and Chihuahuas and German Shepherds within the next, you know, 100, 200 years. I don't think that's, I mean, it sounds like sci-fi crazy talk, like I should put on a tinfoil hat, but I don't know. It's okay. I got my tinfoil hat on. Just wait till we're on different planets, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This has been crazy conversation. Never expected it to go some of these ET-esque ways that it went. But I think it's been pretty cool. I think it's been nice for people to hear about. And I think people can definitely benefit. If they want to check you out, Jesse, not, of course, to see your sexy face, where's the best place for them to come say hey? I, I got a great face for radio, as they say. Um, yeah, my uh, place on the web is smartdrugsmarts.com. And 
uh, we broadcast every week. We try to do something that'll help you make yourself smarter, whether it's nootropics, pharmaceuticals, or just you know, sort of clever brain and life hacks. And so, uh, yeah, anybody that wants to check it out would really love it. Yeah, guys, you're crowdfunders, you're hackers. You might just want to hack yourself as well. Let's try to take it somewhere cool. Thanks for coming on, Jesse. Hey, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And thanks for tuning in, listeners. Hope you guys enjoyed this little bit different, still highly entertaining and insightful interview with Jesse. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show all about building a better business, world, and life with physical products. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and if you've enjoyed today's episode, you should check out artofthekickstart.com. You can find access to all our past episodes, get our Kickstarter Crush It Guide, and if you love the episode, be sure to leave us a review, artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes. It helps more inventors and entrepreneurs find the show and helps us get better guests on here to help you grow your business. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, have a great and productive week. Go build something incredible.